When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. And by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit BraintreePayments.com slash culture. And by the American Heart Association, which is urging lawmakers to save physical education. The average school gets just $764 every year for physical education. Go to heart.org slash let them play to learn more and to take action. Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast brings you the latest updates from the campaign trail. The Oscar campaign, that is. Will the voters choose the establishment favorite? It's Spielberg and it's Disney. You know, it goes down easy enough. An upstart outsider with a compelling story. There's a chance you show it and the audience just goes, I do not accept Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace. Or has the eventual winner not even entered the race yet? And we were all sitting here this year waiting on these three December movies that no one has seen. Subscribe to Little Gold Men from Vanity Fair and Panoply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Radio Radio Edition. It's Wednesday, November 4th, 2015. On today's show, Elvis Costello has gone from grotty new wave rebel to omnivorous dean of the pop songbook. Along the way, he has made some of the most enduring songs and albums in the pop era. Now he has a memoir. We discuss unfaithful music and disappearing ink with Slate's music critic Carl Wilson. And then Hotline Bling, the new music video from Drake, has gone full viral. We discuss the state of Drake with Slate's own Leon Nafak. And finally, Adele has died and gone to pre-order heaven, or so it seems, with her new teaser single, Hello. Joining me today is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. And I should say that Julia Turner, unfortunately, is uh, feeling unwell, and she's unable to join us today. So we've gone with uh, three of the voices who write about music for Slate as fill-ins, and we are doing a all-music show. We don't, we don't typically do themed shows, do we? Yeah, this was sort of um, one of those things that was born from necessity, but I think it's kind of a fun idea because there are some good musical things happening this week. A happy shambles hopefully will ensue. All right. Well, Dana, before we start, we got to hear about Slap Plus, of course, and uh, we have some other business as well. Yes. uh, This week on Slate Plus, we're going to talk extending our music theme about embarrassing workout songs and the music that we put on to pump ourselves up for exercise with our guest, Chris Malanfi. 
And the only other piece of business we have to talk about is our upcoming Slate live show, the Superfest, the big show that we're doing on November 16th at Town Hall in Manhattan with the Political Gab Fest folks, with the Hang Up and Listen guys, and with um, Slate's own Dan Coyce from Mom and Dad are Fighting as host. It's going to be a really fun show. So there are still some tickets available for that. You can go to slate.com slash live to get your ticket. And as a special thank you to our Slate Plus members, I wanted to mention that Every show at the Superfest, us, the Political Gab Fest, and Hang Up and Listen will be raffling off a basket of show-related swag. So that might be movies that I've endorsed on the show, books that you've talked about. I don't know what the heck is going to be in the other people's baskets, but they've been selected sort of for the taste of each um, each podcaster, and there's a raffle. So if you're a Slate Plus member, the easiest way to enter this is to sign up before you go to the show, because it's going to be crazy once you get there. And to do that, you would email superfestraffle at gmail.com with your name. And if you're not a member, you can sign up to be at slate.com slash plus. When you do so, of course, you'll also get ad-free versions of all our podcasts and special bonus segments for Slate Plus members. So that's it, Steve. Back to the show. Thanks, Dana. All right, digging in. Elvis Costello is the cheeky nom de chanson of the British singer-songwriter Declan McManus, who started out in the 70s as a pub rocker, then made his early name as an angry young man. But there was never any hiding his deep musical roots in jazz, soul, music hall, folk, His first five or so albums, in my estimation, have only one rival in the pop canon for Out of the Gate Genius, and that would be Bob Dylan's first five or so records. He's gone on to be a living songbook of his own material, but also an encyclopedia of musical styles, popular and otherwise. And all through his work, he displays a commanding grasp of melody and lyric. And through these, he sends his own peculiar shivers of irony. I love Elvis Costello. I am so excited to be talking about them, but double it because I'm doubly excited to be talking about it with Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic. Carl, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Carl, the occasion for this is the, is the new memoir, Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. You have a piece forthcoming for Slate about it. We haven't had a chance to uh, read your piece, but you've read the memoir. It weighs in at 674 pages. That is quite a doorstop. Where do you want to begin with it? That's a good question. I mean, the book is really, it's both fascinating and sort of compelling in the way that Costello's entire manner is. You know, he's a great sort of raconteur and wit and all of these things are very present in the book. And at the same time, it's also this kind of formless rambling thing. It's a completely structureless memoir in a lot of ways. It's really lively in the moments where it hits sort of the electric moments of his life, but it doesn't follow in chronological order. It, a lot of it seems to be sort of almost free associated. You know, he starts, when he hits a point when he starts talking about his sort of first childhood encounter with the Beatles, and then it, and then it sort of drifts to the first time he met Paul McCartney, and then the next time he met Paul McCartney, and <laughs> there's all of these kinds of things that go on. So it, it's kind of a frustrating book, but really entertaining on that level, but it also is really revealing in a lot of ways. I think that the central thing for me that it really altered about my perception of him is I knew long ago and and beforehand that he came from a musical family and that his father was a musician of some kind. To me, that was kind of sort of a vague fact about him, but like his father was actually like a famous full-time singer. And, mm. like a, and a band leader, right? A real professional, like, dance band singer. And his grandfather, as well, was a, was, a, was a professional musician. So he actually, like, comes from this long line of real working 
musicians. And in some ways, the way that he fleshes that out over the course of the book really altered my perception of Costello, particularly that sort of vision of the young Elvis Costello, that sort of whole sort of punk rock inflected angry young man thing. When you start to give that, it's just like, oh, but you were, you're just in the family business. You're, you're really mm-hmm. just doing something, you, you know, you're out there making a living in a way that, that really puts him in context in a way that, in, that really changes it. And then, of course, there's also sort of a personal level where his father was also a working musician and a philanderer and somebody who left his wife and a hard drinking guy. And, all, and so Costello also inherits a lot of those flaws along with the sort of, talent mm-hmm. i i think we should hear a little elvis before we go much further why don't we just listen to the first very first cut from the very first album welcome to the working week now that your pictures and a paper being rhythmically admired and you can't have in a one that you have ever desired all you gotta tell me now is why 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 welcome to the working week oh i know it don't thrill you i hope it don't kill you welcome to the working week you gotta do it till you're through it so you better get to it Carl, now that you've said that that Elvis Costello talks a lot about his father and his relationship with his father in this in this memoir, I am definitely going to read it, even if it is 674 pages long, because I love when he talks about his father. That show, Spectacle, that he used to host on Ovation, I don't know if you ever saw that show. It was this great hour-long format show where he would have on a musician or a songwriter that he admired, and they would play each other's songs, play other people's songs, talk about music. It was kind of rambling like the book is and structureless, but it was wonderful. And uh, and one of the things I used to love on that show was when he would tell any kind of anecdote about his childhood and, and Ross McManus, his father. So, uh, so I'm definitely going to read it just for that. Yeah, that spectacle is sort of one of the great miracles of Elvis Costello's career in a lot of ways, because, you know, who would have thought back in the days where he was scandalizing Saturday Night Live by breaking into radio, radio when he wasn't supposed to play it, that he would like later be this kind of genial talk show host. Carl, you referenced that famous appearance on Saturday Night Live very early on in his career. He goes on, he's told that he shouldn't play the song Radio, Radio, because it is sort of about biting the hand of big radio. Calling Mr. with he gets two bars into, I think, less than zero. He stops the band, says, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. And he kicks into Radio Radio and does this scorching version of it, after which I think he's banned from the show for quite a while. Anyway, it's funny. He did start out as someone who looked and sounded the part of a punk or a post-punk or kind of a new wave, not especially appealing to look at, enraged, biting persona. How much of that was really him in a way? And how much of that was just a put on because he was looking for a, a crack to crawl through into the music business? Yeah, I think I think mostly the latter. You know, one of the, he's he's quite dismissive of punk in the book on the level particularly that he disdains the fantasy that punk entertained that all previous music needed to be dismissed. And this idea that there was sort of a year zero in 1977 and that everything before it was dismissed. At one point, kind of crucially in the book, he says, you know, that music started to get better again in the early 80s when that persona was dropped and people like The Clash started raiding their record collection for ideas. And the thing that 
you know, it really makes you aware of reading the book is that, like, Costello even more, you know, I think one of the things that we always underestimate about punk is that it's it's not really sort of the Gen X phenomenon that we think of it as sometimes. It's really like the last wave of baby boomers, right, and really in tension with 60s culture, which those people lived through. And, and Costello was just a little bit older than the main bulk of the punks. And so he really, what, like, it's the first part of the book, you know, you're watching him go to, like, Grateful Dead and Band and, and Cos- Crosby, Stills, and Nash concerts as, mm. like, a late teenager. Like, And by the time that he emerged as a public figure, he was married with a child. You know, he was, he was only in his early 20s, but he was still just a little bit older and a little bit more middle class and a little more settled. And I think because of that family music business background, a little bit more savvy on some level than most of supposed punk generation was. And so there's definitely like a game that he's playing where, you know, he started off sort of covering, you know, Paul Simon songs in folk clubs and then sort of turns around and, and rides this kind of punk new wave thing with a certain amount of, of skepticism and also a certain amount of savvy. And also, I would add a, a huge degree more musicianship and knowledge of musical culture than the punks brought to their music. That's why they sounded the way they sounded, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a point, one of my favorite sentences in the whole book is when he just says, the attractions played rings around everyone else, and I just had to stand in the middle and sing. You know, and, and all of those musicians mostly were found through like a, a want ad, but you think, oh, right, but when everybody came into an di- audition, your standards were more exacting and the people you were looking for were more specific than what everybody else who was throwing a band together in that day was like. Mm-hmm. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, I mean, so those first four, five, six albums are just, they're almost perfect all the way through, but he's been around for decades now and he's made a lot of different kinds of music. He loves to collaborate with his heroes, George Jones and... Um, Burt Bacharach? All through the night you telephoned I saw the light blinking red Beside the cradle But you don't know how far I've come Now I must live with the lie That I made Do you think in a way he was almost too gifted and prolific in a way, that it's such a huge discography now, it's hard to locate oneself in it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the dilemmas of Costello's career is that, you know, it's absolutely true, I think, that for those first 10 years, he could barely put a foot wrong, and he was so prolific and had a, a particular panache that is unique in some ways. And then after that, you know, everybody can sort of debate where the high points are, can I just stand up and say, though, I think that Burt Bacharach album is a masterpiece, and it took me a while to start feeling that way about it, but I think it's one of his best albums, although it is one of these later albums. It's a collaboration and is experimenting with different styles, and I completely respect that he never stood still. Absolutely, and and those collaborative moments are usually the most interesting, I think. But left to his own devices, he kind of ratchets between trying stuff he hasn't tried before and... Then, you know, although a lot of the time in the book he sort of denounces and says that he's not compelled by nostalgia, I think there's always that questing a little bit for that early magic, and critics definitely, 
you know, collaborate in that problem. There's all, you know, he gets, he's, he gets, there's the, the formula of, oh, his best album since XXX and, and that happens over and over again in his work, but it's always kind of a, a almost a aspirational thing to, to declare his latest work. It's, it's never without inspiration, but it's always never quite capturing that sort of quicksilver that he had at one point. Mm. All right, but listen, before we go, let's see each name a cut that we especially love by the truly great Elvis Costello. Carl, let's start with you. There's so many, you know, I mean, the song that comes to mind the most for me always is, is his song about Margaret Thatcher, um, Tramp mm. the Dirt Down. Well, I hope I don't die too soon. I prayed a lot, my soul to say. Yes, I'll be a good boy. I'm trying so hard to behave. Because there's one thing I know. I'd like to live long enough to savor. That's way. Uh, Dana, what do you got? Oh God, that's a that's a really tough choice. I think we had a segment before where we talked about you, you and Julia and I talked about the best live music show we'd ever seen, and my show was two back to back shows um, by Elvis Costello and the Attractions during the Blood and Chocolate tour. It was in Paris that I saw him, and it was just really unforgettable. So good that I went back another night. That was why I saw him two nights in a row. And the second night he played an all acoustic set, and it was fantastic. Anyway, so anything from Blood and Chocolate is a great favorite of mine, maybe because of that period and that album. I guess I would say maybe my favorite song and the one that I, I still listen to the most from Blood and Chocolate would be Blue Chair, which is just such a perfect pop song and also just a wonderful kind of cry of romantic anguish. Also, of course, the whole album, Imperial Bedroom, you can't really pick a yes. song because it's a, it's a kind of concept album where all the songs link together into one big sound. But all of Imperial Bedroom is, is my favorite album. You know, it's funny. I was when I was 17 or 18 years old, maybe I'd just been kicked out of high school. I was painfully in love with this young woman who went there and had not been able to see her for many months because I was exiled. And um, I went and visited her. She had this sort of profligate father with a half-completed beach house on the New Hampshire shore, and I went to visit her there. And all I remember from that weekend is playing cards with her endlessly, 
while Imperial Bedroom played on loop. I hadn't heard the album yet. And she knew all the lyrics already. And so she was singing along to the entire album. History repeats the old conceits. The clip replies the same defeats. Keep your finger on button issues with crocodile tears and pocket full of tissues. Just the oil and slip and wind the world of the nervous tick. In a very fashionable that record just absolutely corkscrewed its way like bewitchingly to my heart. And I've never known whether it's as toweringly great as I think it is because um, I can't ex- extricate it from that experience. But It is. It is that great. It is. For my song, um, a little toss away, uh, about a toss away on the Get Happy record called Motel Matches, which is just little and short and perfect and a perfect gem. Um, all right, Carl, it's always so great to have you on the show. A complete pleasure. Carl Wilson, thanks so much for coming on to talk about Elvis Costello. Well, thanks for having me. All right, and people, please come and tell us what your favorite Elvis Costello song is if you have one at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Dana Stevens. What do we have? Stephen, this week we are sponsored by one of your favorite of our sponsors, Harry's Razors. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, Harry's. Yeah, bring it on. So this week we wanted to mention that Harry's is an official partner of the Movember Foundation and will be donating money and helping to raise awareness for men's health this month. You know about Movember, Steve, right? Remind me. Movember is the reason that many people that you see in the streets, men, are probably going around with strange, shaggy facial hair of different kinds because Movember is a month where men grow mustaches and other facial hair forms to raise awareness for men's health issues. I feel like as a Harry's user, you should you should participate yourself. You should grow some sort of a soul patch or a goatee or a <laughs> some fireman's, what do they call them? You know, mutton chop sideburns mutton or something. Chop. Uh, the truth is I always have oddly positioned, unsightly facial hair growths on my face anyway. So I feel as though I've been striking a blow for men's health (laughs) um, unconsciously for decades now, but I can do it now semi-consciously. But then after you've grown this bizarre devil's patch, what are you going to shave it off with? Well, the fact is that to even grow it, right? You've got to shape it. You've got to shape it with some sort of a hair removal device or else you're not celebrating Movember. You're just turning back into a caveman. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And if you're going to do that, do you want to give your tithe to the oligopoly? No, you don't want to do that. What you want to do is buy your razor from someone who has bypassed the egregious, the totally superfluous middleman, um, the thieving middleman who drives up the prices of tiny little commodity item razors to preposterous heights. That's ridiculous. In the age of the internet, you should be buying your razors directly from Harry's, which I do. I did completely independently of the sponsorship, by the way, and have been nothing but totally happy. Um, as a person who somewhat dreads shaving the kind of, you know, like kind of Christmas gift aspect of this neat little box coming in the mail at a reasonable price and giving me the tools to um, be clean shaven uh, has been a total, total hit, total pl- a total pleasure. Totally with you on that, Steve. So let's just tell listeners about the deal that Harry's is offering to Slate Culture Gabfest listeners right now. For just $10, if you use our Culture Gabfest code CULTURE, you can get a razor handle, three blade cartridges, and your choice of shaving cream or foaming shave gel. And the shipping is all free. So go to harrys.com right now. You can get $5 off your first order, again, with the promo code CULTURE. That's harrys.com and enter the code 
culture to start celebrating Movember and shaping your facial hair. All right, Steve, back to the show. Thanks, Dana. All right, moving on. Drake is the nice guy rapper from Canada. He has a new music video, Hotline Bling, that only moments after it was dropped got picked up and virally. In fact, I should say it didn't even really go viral. It went full meme. Leon Nafak is the criminal justice reporter for Slate. He wrote a great article about Drake called Peak Drake for Fader Magazine. He joins us to talk about Drake and the new music video. Leon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, welcome back, I should say. I want to plug your book, The Next Next Level. We talked about that before. Great book. Thank you. And a great success. Congrats. All right. Walk me through this a little bit. Drake means close to nothing to me, but um, <laughs> tell us what he means to you and what this latest data point in the career of uh, Drake means. You know, I, I am an unabashed fan of his. I look forward to every little thing he does. And I love this video. I think it's really funny. Uh, and I love the song. I think it's one of his best songs. It's one of the, one of his most catchy songs. And uh, it was really th- thrilling to see it go from being a sort of throwaway that he played on his Apple Music radio show to being uh, almost the number one song in the country. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, why don't we listen to Hotline Bling? Yeah. You used to call me on my cell phone. Night when you need my love, call me on my cell phone. Late night when you need my love, and I know when that hotline bling, that can only mean one thing. I know when that hotline bling, that can only mean one thing. So to describe the video that goes along with this song, which I think is a really key part to why it's it's hit so huge, right? It's the kind of the disjunction between the visuals and the song and, and his dancing in the video. So to describe the video, uh, it begins with what seems to be a call center, maybe, for a sex hotline, right? With a bunch of bodacious ladies in matching pink T-shirts and blue jeans answering the phone with these, uh, these suggestive phrases. And then for the rest of the video, we proceed to enter what seems to be a James Terrell light installation, right? The artist who works with big spaces filled with colored light. I mean, the, the, the spaces that have been created for this video by a guy who goes by the name Director X look almost exactly like a James Terrell installation. And by the way, it's not us noticing that this looks like a James Terrell light installation. Um, the director and Drake have both acknowledged that influence, and Terrell himself has come out with a really funny press release statement about it. Steve, did, do you have that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrell has said, while I am truly flattered to learn that Drake fucks with me, I nevertheless wish to make clear that neither I nor any of my woes was involved in any way in the making of the Hotline Bling video. I love it. No conceptual artists were hurt in the making of this video. (laughs) And so in these light-flooded white boxes um, that seem to be shifting color from shot to shot, Drake and the bodacious ladies appear in alternate shots dancing. The ladies, very well. Drake, in his own fashion that I think we should describe because the Drake dance has been a big part of why Hotline Bling has hit so big. We should all describe it together because it takes it takes a, a village to describe. I mean, let me put it this way. There's rarely been a music video in which I could recreate the dancing that takes place in it. And this may be that music video, right? I mean, it's kind of a lot of meandering, kind of walking around these light sets that you described, making fairly minimalist hand gestures almost like he's playing a game of ping pong. I don't know. I can't even describe it. How would you describe it? (laughs) Well, I I liked what the director said when they sort of asked, how did you arrive at the moves for Drake? And he said, you can't choreograph that. That's just a man (laughs) dancing. (laughs) 
Yeah, there is something refreshing when every hip hop video is filled with incredibly virtuosic dancing that makes you feel like any way that you move to the song would necessarily be just too dorky for words. To see somebody dancing like worse than your average <laughs> kind of dad at prom or something. Yeah, it is like chaperone dad. He's dancing like chaperone dad. And like chaperone dad, he didn't take his down jacket off. <laughs> I think it's it's been described as as dad dancing. I think in a couple of places, I, and I think dad dad dancing kind of implies that like the person doing it is like wrong to feel cool doing whatever he's doing. I think he does look cool. I think you know I'm not saying that he's some amazing uh, dancer, but he, he he you can tell he he's having the time of his life, and you can tell that he's making it up as he goes along, and you can tell that he feels cool uh, moving around this way. And I think it's really infectious. And I think people identify with that and they can remember times when they've been at parties and they've been goofing off on the dance floor and sort of finding their rhythm. And I think that's what you see in this video. Well, the disjunction, too, I think part of what makes it so comical is the disjunction between these really, um, you know, artificial, deliberate, beautiful sets that are very artful and then this dancing that really just does seem to be like a dude at a party. So there's there's a very comic element to this video, right? And the song itself is comic because Hotline Bling, as I understand the lyric, is all about him asking why his girl won't call him anymore yeah, he's while, like, he, while he sits around just being the neediest dweeb you could possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's. A, I think I think I've always sort of interpreted the song as being about like an ex-girlfriend who he dated before he was famous, which is like a topic he returns to over and over again in his music. He's like constantly singing about girls that he had relationships with before he was Drake. I, he's like talked in interviews before about how he like is sad that they've moved on. They have, have these normal lives with like good boyfriends and husbands and possibly filling their passport with stamps. He says in the song, right? Yeah. They're traveling. Yeah, I guess in this. I guess in this song, he's like describing someone who's become like more of a party girl or whatever. And I think people have been turned off maybe by the tone he takes towards this person because it sounds like he's saying, like, I liked you better when you were staying at home all the time. I don't know. I guess I've always heard the song as sort of not being sung to someone uh, so much as, like, him just, like, having these thoughts privately. And he's just, uh, you know, at one point he says, I I feel left out. I don't know. doesn't strike me as evil so much as just, like, an honest expression of melancholy that I feel like anyone can identify with. Mm Mm-hmm. Leon, can we get to the meme ability of this song? Because that, I think, is one of the main reasons we decided to talk about it. We've discussed Drake as a musician before, but the particular impact of, of this video has been that it's so infinitely memeable. And, and Drake and the director have both talked about how they knew that, they realized yeah. that as they were putting it together. And that, you know, these corny dance moves we're talking about were kind of ideal for a gif. And, uh, you know, that people have done all these great things like combine, you know, Kirk and Spock from the Star Trek movies with Drake dancing yeah. and, and create little narratives out of it. He's really good at this. He He's like he's been doing this for for years now, where he just not necessarily with with gifts, but you know he comes up with little phrases like that people just want to use on on social media as hashtags. He writes songs that are sort of that revolve around words that everyone just wants to like take for themselves. And I think it's been a big like source of his power. Um, this video certainly was you know created to be the source material for people making stuff out of it. There's these very long shots that I think probably make that pretty easy. Uh, Also because he could be dancing to any song since he's so arrhythmic. You can basically (laughs) put it with anything and it goes. Yeah. So I think, unfortunately, we have to wrap up this segment. But I I would send people, even if they're not particularly interested in Drake, to watch this video because it's lots of fun. And I was thinking maybe we should all name our favorite move. What is your single favorite dance move that Drake invents as he goes along in the Hotline Bling video. There's one thing he does where he kind of puts his arms out to the sides and kind of jiggles his elbows uh, and his head kind of bobs uh, in between his, his his arms. And it just reminds me of um, 
Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof when he's dancing to uh, <laughs> If I Were a Rich Man. Uh, I feel like I bet Drake identifies with Tevia. Um, he, he could play a Tevia. He could totally. pull off a Tevia. I, I would That's put awesome. I would put money on Drake being on certainly being on Broadway within 20 years, but it would be pretty cool if he was in Fiddler on the Roof. I can't pick out a favorite dance move, but I do think I have a description for how he dances. It's like he's playing ping pong with Schrodinger's cat. Well, I think I'm going to go... Tr- what can I say? I tried. I have nothing to say about Drake. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Schrodinger's cat is perfect. I'm going to have to go with the double Carly Rae Jepsen when he does a little phone pinky with each hand and kind of jiggles in between like he can't decide which hand to answer first. That move was described in this great Mashable post that breaks down the, uh, the choreography into some basic moves as <laughs> something like... I can't remember the name of that fruit right now, but it sounds really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to say between us, the Tevia, the double Carly Ray, and Schrodinger's cat is not bad. All right. Well, Leon, always a huge pleasure to have you on the Thanks for uh, having show. Me. Please come back soon. Thank you. All right. And also, we'll link to your article on the uh, show page. It's called Peak Drake, and it was in Fader Magazine. Thanks again, Leon. Thanks. All right, now is the moment in our show where we talk about our other sponsor, Dana Stevens. What do we have? Yes, indeed. Our second sponsor this week, Steve, is Braintree. Braintree makes mobile payments fast, easy, and seamless. With a few lines of code, your site is instantly ready to accept PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin, any form of payment. And if some other way to pay comes along, Braintree will support that, too. To check out Braintree's mobile checkout experience for yourself, visit braintree-payments.com culture. Okay, Stephen, back to the show. Thanks, Dana. All right, moving on. Adele is the British singer-songwriter. Her album, 21, it was her second record, is the longest-running number one by a UK studio album in the United States. It broke record after record after record. She's now returned with the single Hello uh, with the accompanying video. We're joined by Chris Melanthi to talk about Adele and the state of the pop charts. He writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate and is a chart analyst extraordinaire. Chris, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thank you very much, Steve. Good to talk to you. Chris, you're in the process right now of writing about this song because it's in the process of uh, swallowing the globe whole. Uh, Tell us about (laughs) it and Adele and why it's uh, so huge. I mean, it's huge because it is Adele, right? I mean, as you you let in uh, at the top, anything Adele released leading into her next album, which, by the way, is coming out in about three weeks, it's going to be called 25, anything she released would have been a massive hit, uh, presumably. But the setup for Hello in particular has been just D-Day precise. I mean, they've, they've really lined everything up. And as I'm pondering the song right now for my, my piece about it, uh, what occurs to me is that it, 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 isn't, it isn't just, uh, you know, any old Adele song. It's, it's kind of a meta Adele song. I mean, all of Adele's songs have been in some way about Adele. You may recall from... Um, her smash album 21, which, you know, dominated the charts in 2011 and 2012, that, you know, one of her biggest hits was called Someone Like You, uh, which was about, you know, an ex-lover. Indeed, the whole album was about, you know, an, an ex of hers and, and, you know, was a sort of uh, the heartbreak album. Um, this song, Hello, is a worthy sequel to that. I mean, it's about Adele. It's about her relationship to an ex yet again. And it's kind of about Adele's relationship to the general public. You you might as well have titled the song Hello to My Global Public. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it may be the first song that she's done that isn't just about Adele. It's also kind of about itself. You know, she's almost implying, no, please do call it a comeback. I'm here. 
and you can really see it when you watch the video, uh, which I know you guys have just watched for the first time, if I'm not mistaken. And the, the video is very much set up to sort of reintroduce Adele uh, in grand fashion. And uh, there's a moment about a minute into the, the video, which I've watched over and over again as I've been preparing for this piece, where you kind of haven't been seeing much of Adele's face, and then all of a sudden, about a minute in, you can actually see this still if you Google Adele right now and, and look at any of the many articles that are writing about her, her amazing chart feats. They all have frozen on this moment where Adele um, finally turns to the camera and looks dead on uh, into the camera and basically is like, you know, peering into your soul. Uh, and, and that's kind of the moment when, you know, the first piano droplets of the song kick in and, and you know, the song uh, begins its, its wounded journey. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's branding 101 and, and, you know, they have branded this to the hilt. Yeah, it begins its wounded journey to my minivan CD player, uh, where it's going to be played nonstop for the next six months by my two daughters. Um, all right, well, let's start our wounded journey by, um, by listening to the song. I mean, Dana, isn't she a little bit in danger of the spurned lover persona just taking over her image completely? Yeah, that really struck me as a strange choice for your very first appearance back on the market, you know, after this this time off, having a baby, you know, settling down, um, and, and apparently in, in her actual life, getting over whatever heartbreak led to the album 21, and then popping back up to say, hey, I'm just calling so we can go over everything about the breakup. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think of, of Drake in the Hotline Bling video we were discussing earlier, where she's, she's sort of the pitiful left-behind lover, you know, popping up again to say, like, wait, wait, there's a few more things to analyze, you know, and there's there's a funny line that keeps well not meant to be funny obviously but a line that keeps recurring about i've called you a thousand times but you never seem to be home and of course you just imagine the ex-lover screening the calls (laughs) yeah it's adele again god damn it (laughs) she's never heard of caller id apparently um chris you're saying in a way this is kind of meta that it's actually quite aware of what it's doing that she's warming her way back into our collective hearts by saying she's still Adele, maybe there will be huge surprises on the record. She'll go in a completely different direction. There just there needs to be an "I will survive" moment on this album, right? Have you have you heard the whole album yet, Chris? Or it's not available to be heard? Yeah, I'm not sure anybody's heard the whole album yet. I, it's been under lock and key. I mean, this album, in theory, was going to appear in time for the holiday season of 2014, and now here it is a year later, and they're finally deploying it. So the 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 songs for this record have been in the works for quite some time. I mean, it's. It's a little hard to overstate how anticipated 25, this Adele album, is for the record business as a whole. Frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if rival record labels were rooting for it. I mean, it, it is hard to overstate how um, out of character her performance this decade was just as a sales phenomenon. Um, uh, 21 in America sold 11.2 million copies. That number should blow your mind. Albums don't sell 11.2 million copies anymore. I mean, a hit album now is lucky to go platinum, which is a single million. 
Um, mm. And here's Adele, you know, and she was the long distance runner, by the way. That was that album was the number one album of both 2011 and 2012. It's the first album to be number one of two consecutive years since Thriller. It is not too grand to call it, at least on a sales level, the thriller of this decade. It, it stands head and shoulders above everything else that's been released, including Steve, your dreaded Taylor Swift. I mean, yes. Taylor Swift is more front loaded. She does, you know, 1.3 million in a week, and she, you know, sells and sells and sells, and she does very well. But her albums tend to finally peter out at about five or six million. The Adele album sold twice that. Um, but to get back to the lyrics, I mean. Yeah, I, I do see it as very much in her wheelhouse, very much of her brand. I mean, it's basically, you know, Adele, your queen of heartbreak is back. Like, you know, not a day has gone by since 2012, the last time she re- released a single, and she's picking right up where she left off. I mean, if you if you focus on the lyric in miniature, it, it is, to your point, Dana, kind of a flip-flop of the theme of the, the 21 singles insofar as if she's almost the party who has wronged someone, as opposed to the theme of all of the 21 singles was, I have been wronged. This is a, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I've read a couple of interviews with Adele where she claims that, you know, the song is both to a composite lover, but also kind of to her public, because she knows she's been gone a while. Uh, She hasn't released any material since uh, Skyfall, the single from the James Bond movie, which came out in late 2012. One of the best Bond songs ever, by the way. Yeah, no, I really like that song, too. But she hasn't put out anything since then. And so I very much see the lyric to this song as having it both ways. It's a twofer. It's it's both, you know, doing the Queen of Heartbreak thing kind of from the flip side, like, no, please pick up the phone. I want to talk to you. I'm so sorry that I left you behind. And at the same time saying to her public, uh, hello, it's me. It's literally the first line of the song. Hello, it's me. You know, I was wondering if after all these years you'd like to meet to go over everything. It might as well be the the detail of, you know, the rollout of her album. You know, it could be a marketing plan for crying out loud. Another thing that's remarkable about the video is that we see the lover, right? I don't think in any of the videos for 21 we ever saw the man that she has yep. been pining for all these years. But he plays a large part in these these flashbacks where you see him cooking her dinner and laughing with her and these sad memories that she's reaching back for, which to me was a little bit, I mean, I'm, in general, find this to be true about music videos, but it seems so flat and illustrative, like there he is. You know, it seemed like a little bit of a, a downer. Yeah, no, it, it is remarkable. And actually the performance by the actor in the video, uh, Tristan, Tristan Wilds, who uh, fans of The Wire may recognize from the fourth season of The Wire. He was one of the Oh, the it's Michael, right. Yeah, he looks so different. It's Michael yeah. from The Wire. Yeah, all grown up now. Uh, and, and it's really quite a remarkable performance, just an interesting casting in general. And you're right, it, it's, it's kind of a, a new wrinkle. But, you know, again, I, I like the song, but at the same time, I can't help but look at this as branding 101. It's, it's like taking what worked before, tweaking it just 45 degrees to the left, and saying, here you go, here's the new thing, same as the old thing, but a little bit different. I mean, that, that, that to me is what the song is all about. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it just seems inevitable that the album is going to start there and then go in new directions. She's too savvy uh, to have the rest of the record hit that same note. There's going to be, the next one's going to be a curveball. I'm sure of it. There has to be a song about her baby, too, right? Nobody has a song about a baby and then doesn't come back in their comeback and write a song about their baby. And I want to hear that because I really think Adele is a great, she's one of the great heartstring tuggers. You know, I'm kind of teasing her in this segment because I don't actually love this song, but I do love Adele. And I love when she hits that exact note of of longing and and heartbreak. Uh, Chris, before the end of the segment, I really want to ask you, um, at the height of her success with 21, she was derided as music for soccer moms. And there is a sense maybe she's selling a lot of records because she's selling records to people who 
aren't internet savvy. I mean, it's it's she of course her appeal is cross generational. She couldn't be as big as she was if it weren't. But a lot of people who maybe don't principally get their music digitally are willing to go out and buy a CD for her. Is there something about the Adele persona? the Adele sound and the Adele business model that's so profitable because it's uncool? By contemporary standards, absolutely. I mean, what's remarkable about Adele, particularly for the the modern music business, is how she's had it both ways. Like, first of all, there are stats that something like 80% of the sales of 21 were on plain old physical CD. So they, you know, it did very well digitally. It, it sold something like 2 million copies digitally, but there were 11 million copies sold of that thing, and the vast majority of them were sold on traditional, you know, plastic CD. So there's definite truth to that, that it is the record that's sold to people who don't buy records very often anymore. On the other hand, Adele had big old hits on the radio. I mean, a lot of the stuff that sells to folks in their 30s, 40s, 50s is stuff that isn't necessarily radio music. Uh, you know, think back to the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack, or, you know, any one of the so-called Starbucks favorites of the 2000s, which were, you know, sold to people who, you know, bought them with their latte. I mean, those were not uh, records that were doing well on the radio. They were kind of album phenomena. Uh, the, the album that Adele is sometimes compared to, or the artist that she sometimes compared to, is uh, Nora Jones, who had a similar sales trajectory in the early 2000s. Uh, that album, Come Away With Me, similarly sold 10 million copies at a time when the record industry was already starting to tail off and records weren't really selling 10 million copies anymore. And then um, she came back in 2004 with an album called Feels Like Home that debuted to 1 million copies in its first week. Anticipation for Nora Jones' second album was off the charts ridiculous, much the way anticipation for this third album from Adele was off the charts ridiculous. But Nora Jones kind of petered out on that second album. It was very front-loaded. Everybody bought it the first you know, month. And then it didn't really blanket the radio. She wasn't really a radio artist to begin with. Whereas Adele, I mean, in 2011, 2012, Rolling in the Deep was a number one hit on the Hot 100. Someone Like You was a number one hit on the Hot 100. Set Fire to the Rain, number one hit. Like, these songs were listened to by teenagers. They were listened to by people across the spectrum. So she has this very unique position right now. She's, she's competing with the Taylor Swifts. She is quite literally competing with the Justin Biebers and the Drakes. I wrote a piece last week about how she basically blocked Drake from having a number one hit. And yet she also sells to soccer moms. She also sells to people who are not savvy about current culture. That's a pretty rare position. And, you know, with this song, I think they are protecting that position. They are you know, reinvigorating the brand. And then, to Dana's point, hopefully on the album there's going to be something different uh, so that it's not, you know, all Adele, Queen of Heartbreak all the time. Mm. Okay, well, Chris, will you stick around and uh, and endorse and uh, do Slap Plus with us? I would be happy to do Slap Plus. Lovely. All right, well, the song is Hello. It's by Adele. It's everywhere. I'm sure you've experienced it. Well, we'd love to hear what you think about Adele at uh, facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, now is the moment in our show where we talk about our other other sponsor. Dana Stevens, what do we have? Stephen, the Slate Culture Gab Fest is also sponsored this week by the American Heart Association, which is urging lawmakers to save physical education. We all know that physical education is a crucial part of being a kid. Physically fit children perform better academically, they exhibit better classroom behavior, and they have higher attendance rates. That's why the American Heart Association is urging Congress to save physical education. As lawmakers work to finalize the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, strong physical education policy should be a top priority. But some lawmakers want to do away with physical education altogether. You can learn more about the Heart Association's attempt to save physical education and take action yourself at heart.org slash let them play. All right, Stephen, back to the show. All right, now is the moment in our podcast 
where we endorsed Dana Stevens. What do you have? Well, since we talked with Carl Wilson about Elvis Costello and his relationship to his father, and I was talking about how much I love Elvis Costello dad stories, um, I wanted to throw you to a couple of places where you can hear some recent Elvis Costello dad stories. He's all over the place lately because of this memoir coming out. So you see him on every talk show. He's done something for Slate. And uh, and I think that people should go out and, and check those things out. For one thing, he talked to Slate's own Dan Coyce at the Sixth and I Synagogue in, in D.C., and you can watch that clip on Slate. He plays some music. He talks about his childhood and about his twin sons with uh, Diana Krall, the singer. And it's a, really, a wonderfully personable interview. So we'll put a link to that on the show page. And also, he did a great, great appearance on the Stephen Colbert show, the new Stephen Colbert Late Show, where he, again, sings and, and talks um, and tells some Ross McManus stories that just really, really take the cake. So so if you want to hear some good Elvis Costello talking, go listen to him talk to Dan Coyce and Stephen Colbert. We'll put links on the show page. Excellent. Uh, Chris, what do you got? I want to talk about um, Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> uh, I am fascinated by uh, this album that she put out now about two months ago, Emotion, or, you know, as it is spelled, Emotion, uh, which is, I think, my favorite pop album of the year. And it's sort of remarkable because what's happened to Carly Rae Jepsen, she of, uh, you know, 2012 and Call Me Maybe fame, has become basically a cause celeb of critics more than of the radio. Uh, None of the singles from this album have done well at all. Uh, They tried multiple times to sort of connect with Top 40 Radio, and the record is catchy as hell, and uh, yet somehow uh, this album hasn't uh, generated the hits that uh, really her, her prior album only had one hit, and it was, you know, the big one call me maybe but i'm really enjoying this album i'm playing it to death there are tracks on it like run away with me or making the most of the night that are among the catchiest things i've heard all year they for all the world sound like radio music but they just uh, aren't uh, connecting in that way and so i i guess i'm endorsing the idea of listening to carly Ray jepson at album length um it is a very um you know bright shiny pop album but also uh, a very carefully produced ornate pop album and uh, uh it's just got hook after hook. So anyway, for what it's worth, that's uh, that's the album I'm playing the most these days. Chris, it's too bad Julia's not in here today because we're always trying to get her to become an album person instead of the single person that she is. So maybe you could convert her by sort of taking the ultimate single artist, which is how I would think of someone like Carly Rae Jepsen, and listening to them at album length. Yeah, no, the, the, the critics have all kind of chimed in that this is one that you can actually really enjoy at full length. So yeah, th- this would be the one for Julia. It's a gateway drug. Um, All right. Well, I'm going to go full Metcalf and I'm going to endorse um, an interview in Eurozine magazine with the philosopher Jürgen Habermas. (laughs) Eurozine. I I hear it hit my doorstep every month, Stephen. Uh, it's uh, the title of the interview is Critique and Communication Philosophies Missions. You know, I mean, Habermas is what can you say? He's I hate to say it. He's probably the last of a type, which is the great master thinker who in his person carries with him the tradition of the enlightenment i think that that existed in our culture for 300 years or you know certainly back to kant and probably a little bit before that and i'm afraid it's probably going away with this person and he's he's quite elderly now and um it's worth hearing him talk about the relationship of philosophy to the enlightenment to religion to neoliberalism, and he does all three of those things in this interview. It's profoundly moving. I think Habermas is the great living European intellectual. Um, I see no equivalent sequel 
possible. The culture just won't p- permit it. Um, and then the other thing I want to endorse on a slightly lighter note is there's a great YouTube video of Elvis Costello doing the song Man Out of Time from Imperial Bedroom. It's the, for what it's worth, it's in Chicago on 515 2011. And the reason to watch that one is a young woman gets up. He does it as a kind of a a rocker. Like it's a little more rollicking than the album version. It's just such a great song. And a woman from the audience gets up to his right and starts doing this just great, crazy. I think she's in a little black dress, but there's just dance like she's i don't know what how she got up kind of half on stage to do it and she's just grooving to the song like she's she's picked up on the rollick of this live version and she just has to co-perform it with him and about halfway through he spies her and she's quite attractive and he has both the like ironic older man lecher look in his eye when he sees her and the am i about to get fucking offed uh in front of eleven thousand screaming fans by this lunatic and it just infuses the performance with this uh extra aura of sex and danger as well, what's the song it. again i'm gonna look for that uh man out of time Man out of time great one of the great cuts that song i think kept me alive for all of 1982 um but anyway dana thank you so much thanks steve chris thank you so much for filling in it was a great pleasure thank you steve You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed, as always, is at Slate Cult Fest. Boom, boom. For Chris Malamphy and Carl Wilson and Leon Nafak and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, Will. See you soon. Didn't I tell you I could do it? I told everyone I could do it. Nobody didn't believe me, but now they can admit it. I am the greatest loving man that ever was. Baby, I'm going to tell you something. Everybody can admit it.